holidays! You're listening to The Important Cinema Club. My name's Justin the Clue. And I'm Will Sloan. And this week we're doing an all-holiday... Oh, wait, no, I'm getting a note. No, it's Christmas only. Nothing else, just Christmas movies. Specifically, Hallmark Christmas movies. Yes, folks, it's the annual holiday episode of The Important Cinema Club. It's a beloved ritual on this podcast. In the past, we've talked about such films as the Tim Allen Santa Claus trilogy. We've talked about A Christmas Story director Bob Clark. We've talked about The Passions of Carol director Sean Costello. What else could we do (laughs) holiday-themed and and we finally hit upon something that is hiding in plain sight, something that for millions of people has in recent years defined the Christmas movie genre. Yes, that is Hallmark Christmas movies. And when we say Hallmark Christmas movies, there may be some pedants that are coming up and saying, oh, you talked about one that wasn't actually a Hallmark film. We know the term Hallmark Christmas film speaks of an entire genre that every other TV channel that makes these kind of movies has jumped on. Although I will say, I think all four movies that I watched this week are Hallmark original productions. They were. The only one that I watched that wasn't was David Dakota's Santa's Summer Cabin? Summer Home? Yeah, Summer House. Well, that's interesting because a year ago, I watched Fred Olin Ray's Christmas in Vermont starring Chevy Chase. And that was the movie that kind of lit the fuse for this idea, I think. Because Fred Olin Ray director of such films as Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. He is a a favorite of this podcast, and he's one of a number of 80s and 90s exploitation filmmakers who made Hallmark or make Hallmark Christmas movies now. And we were fascinated by this phenomenon. And so originally we thought maybe we would talk about these old timers who now make their living in Hallmark movies because we didn't see any evidence of their style such as it is. We didn't see uh, their authorial presence in these films. And then we, we then decided that this was too limiting. We wanted to look at Hallmark movies as a genre and see wh- where is the art here? Is there art here? What what kind of art is here? The one thing that I was afraid of presented itself to me, which is there is no real authorial voice that has tried to crack these movies and kind of catalog them in a way that is not ironic or kind of like, ah, we know it's bad. <laughs> like, I couldn't find that one core document that would guide me through them and be like, oh, these are the ones that are genuinely weird and interesting, or this director does fascinating stuff within the context of what is expected of them. Yeah, I think that of all the topics we've done on this podcast, this is one of the ones that I had the hardest time getting a handle on, just because there are so many Hallmark Christmas movies. And you know, we've talked about abject genres before, but you look at something like hardcore pornography from the 70s, you look at slasher movies, uh, you look at educational films. These are genres that are abject, but they have a canon of classics, you know? They have examples that people point to of being like, this is the auteur one. This is the director who was able to do something in this form. And I looked at a bunch of lists of the top 10, top 20 Hallmark Christmas movies there seemed shockingly little overlap on these lists. Is it because perhaps that it's still a nascent genre, that there is a lot of them? And they've existed, I think, at their full power probably since 2010-ish, but they're still kind of trapped within this uh, very limited framework. For something that there are so many of them, they all hit the exact same beats. It's not like you watch a Western, especially when Poverty Row was churning them out, and they're all the same story. Yes, there's good guys, there's bad guys, they face off. But like these Christmas movies, 
it is almost shocking at how close each plot follows the other one. And also, this is part of the appeal of these movies. As I understand, uh, the people who watch these movies, people who love these movies, love them partly because they are so predictable. I mean, all rom-coms, all Hollywood rom-coms, or most Hollywood rom-coms, follow formulas and hit certain beats. And these movies do it in excelsis, you know, like they are just the formula. And I know that people who watch these movies like having them on kind of just like as background noise, as ambient noise. And also they like watching them sometimes in group settings, you know, like uh, four or five girlfriends will get together and watch the movies and sort of like make fun of them and talk over them, you know, that, that, that sort of thing, like watching a reality show or something. What's funny about that is that like the producers who make this know that they're doing it for that reason so it's an interesting like unspoken agreement that's made between the viewer and the people making them which is like they know what they're doing like you can look at it and be like ah it's so bad and predictable it's like yeah because they know that's the reaction that the viewer will have and that's why they will continue watching them the movies are consciously made not to have any surprises not to have any uh distinguishing features Ah, but if they just twisted it a little bit then you would have the memorable ones that people would talk about instead of being lost in the fray i agree but the paradox of these movies is if they're memorable if they have that little twist they wouldn't they wouldn't be hallmark movies and they would lose a huge amount of their appeal but they could be (laughs) they could be i i know i know and so that's why it was uh, this was a difficult subject to 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 grasp for me you know because Mm -hmm. so often we're talking about like the outliers so often we're talking about examples of genre movies that um do something interesting that work outside the box and and these movies they are they are breathtakingly pure anyway i put a call out on twitter just like asking people what are the good ones and again i got a, a vast number of answers with very little overlap like i asked people you know what are the fan favorites and i got a lot of i got a lot of conflicting reports i, I just want to like give a shout out to a couple of people who helped me there was an account called rachel's reviews and she has a podcast called hallmarkies pod where they talk about hallmark movies she suggested some including one of the ones we watched this week a very Mary Mixup. And there was another person on Twitter named Ariane Young who gave me a list of factors that go into what makes a Hallmark Christmas movie or what what makes an interesting Hallmark Christmas movie. And I'm just going to read Ariane's list here. She says, female lead performances, male lead performances, meet cutes, small town slash big city, you know, the contrast between them, widow slash widower focused. Is it a pet centered story, typically a canine? Does it have an old school cast? And is the magic of Christmas, quote unquote, a character, quote unquote? And I also learned that rather than the directors, nobody seems to have favorite directors of these movies. Uh, it's, it's really the actors who sell them. And for the women, there are four names who keep coming up. That's a true poverty row reality that they're not selling it on the backs of directors, but the actors appearing in these films. Yeah, and I guess that's interesting to me just because like, you know, one of our agendas here was we were kind of curious, like who is the Edgar G. Elmer of Hallmark mm. movies? And <laughs> we I, have not found them. We've not found them. Maybe they're out there. I hope they're out there. These movies are like poverty row movies from the 40s in the sense that there were a lot of like slumming former stars who were in them. So like this week I saw Alan Thicke in a movie. I saw... <laughs> Treat Williams in a movie. All right, Treat Williams is not phoning it in like Thick was. I, I thought Treat Williams was very good in the movie that he was in. There are also like up and coming people, uh, aspiring people past their prime, like people who never quite made it. And there are a small canon of actors and actresses who 
have really made this their home and have become stars in this ecosystem. And the women include Ashley Williams, Candace Cameron Bure, Danica McKellar, and Alicia Witt. So I had watched some Hallmark movies with my mom before. I think I had watched The Christmas Train. I had fun with that one. It had a novel setting. It was kind of like Murder on the Orient Express, but with no actual murders. And it's revealed to all be gaslighting. Like, that's fun. And that's odd. And that film actually makes it on a lot of lists in like the top five. But the other ones that kind of uh, fall within that list, oh boy, they hit those beats so on the nose. I guess it wouldn't bother me so much if the beats weren't so kind of... The films are kind of deeply ideological, aren't they? I mean, mm-hmm. because because the movies... I mean, I think the people who make Hallmark movies probably talk about theory a lot. Like, the, <laughs> the movies are so, like, machine calibrated that I think they must, like, have, have lists of rules about what works and what oh, doesn't. Oh, 100%. And if you step out of those rules, you are in trouble. They're like Eisensteinian theorists being like, exactly. this is how it needs to be done. And so, like, what works... Works. Uh, white people work. Uh, upper middle class people. You'll see in these movies, the guy is always, you know, he has to be serious. He has to have a good career, but he can't care too much about his career. You know, the women, they have to be beautiful, but they can't too care too much about it. They have to be sort of clumsy, too. And they either have a little operation that has been in their family for their entire life, or they are big city people who need to realize that, I don't know, they need to settle down and become a housewife. That seems to be what the film's stories indicate. Okay, talking about ideology, I want to talk about a movie that both of us watched this week, Crown for Christmas from 2015. So we're starting, I think, at a position of a disadvantage because the second that you talk about any story, especially a romantic one involving royalty, my blood turns cold. It's not something that I like. I actually have a very negative reaction to it. And I actually walked into the room as my partner Emily was watching The Crown recently. And I was like, "What? why do people like, you know, royalty stuff? And she was like, I don't know. It's just nice to see people who uh, don't really have that much control of their lives, but are then also in a position of power and that you can examine under a microscope. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, a lot of people also just love kind of like there, there are a lot of people who are maybe repulsed by royalty as a concept, but love the trappings of it. They love the decor. They love the palaces. They love the Cinderella story quality. Of I it. just think about a second after those stories end. And it's like, what happens after that? It's like, well, you know, we have to cut any kind of social assistance to the people in our country so they're going to be starving this Christmas so I will tell the folks the plot of Crown for Christmas it stars the cute as a button Danica McKellar as arguably out of all the movies that I watched the most charming star I completely agree I liked her the best too and she is a maid from Brooklyn who is also a part time struggling artist so when this started I was like oh wow an actual working wait a minute she's only working class so she could be lifted up near the end of the movie of course Anyway, she is hired to be the governess of a child princess, you know, working under the the visiting monarch of, I guess, England. I'm not sure if the country is specified. It's a made up country. Yeah, it's a made up country. Anyway, they're in New York for some reason. She's going to be the governess. And, you know, she's a bit she's a bit klutzy around the royal establishment, always uh, dropping things and <laughs> doesn't understand the rigid social hierarchies of like the governess isn't allowed to sit with the workers. Out of all the movies that we watch, this is the one where the lead woman character has so little interaction with the male uh, romantic lead that at the end, I'm like, what the hell's going on? He doesn't even know who this person is. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems that I have with these movies is that like the connection between the two leads. I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of these movies. Maybe they have chemistry in some of them. 
in most of them they don't you kind of have to just take it on faith that okay well they had a a midnight stroll and horseback riding session and now they're in love Mm -hmm. and he's blandly handsome and non-threatening so yeah a chance could be taken here at least it didn't end with the king in this film proposing which i was expecting at any moment i said that i think the people who make hallmark movies probably think a lot about the theory of the movies and i think this movie is a perfect example think about the way that royalty is treated in this movie like the people making it know that people love the trappings of royalty but they hate uh, class snobbery and they hate institutionalized hierarchies oh good thing to do with this kind of film is that the royalty can be in the background and they're like oh they're doing it wrong but the point of connection is the staff who are all friendly old people who love what they do know the royalty is wrong but are still willing to help them and the king he can't really be comfortable being the king at one point somebody says about him he's not really comfortable being king and at another point the king says something like huh turns out the monarchy is only popular when we're getting married or having babies and i mean there's nothing like there's nothing subversive about lines like this because it ultimately just like you know is at the service of humanizing these institutions i have a question about the fact that he needs to marry somebody to continue the lineage of the kingdom does this mean they're going to go to war after this movie ends <laughs> because he doesn't get married to that person uh yes i'm gonna say yes they're gonna go to Ooh, war. i want to see the sequel of that one. Oh, but yeah there's that whole second act complication where, yeah, the king's in the arranged marriage to that uh, hoity-toity lady from another royal family and... uh you know, the the Danica McKellar. There's a dance. She gets a nice dress that the um, lovable staff make for her. She comes into the room. Everybody goes, hush. <gasps> oh, my God. I can't believe it's happening. Y- you've seen you've it. You've seen it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and Danica's charming. And maybe that's the reason you're watching it. You just want to see it again in a manner that feels fresh enough that you're just not rewatching the things that you love and that you've experienced your entire life. I think that if there is art to these movies, it's in the extent to which they can distract you from the fact that you've seen the thing over and over again or the extent to which like you, they they can make you not care about the fact that you've seen the thing over and over again if there's art it's of the uh warholian kind of you know the campbell suit repeated over and over and over again <laughs> <laughs> all right that's it i'm starting my hallmark christmas art installation we're just playing every movie at the same time and you see all the beats kind of sync up as they play out on these hundred screens so we've seen four of these fuckers i think we should talk about the christmas house last yes because that's the good one let's go on a good note (laughs) which one do you want to talk about next why don't we do a very merry mix-up because this is one that i didn't find i mean i thought it was bad yes so this is one that ties into something that i'm not a big fan of in these type of movies specifically other than royalty which is the idea of like oh my lot in life where i am happy gets turned around by some folksy wisdom that i feel that i need so often these movies are about like a career woman from the big city goes to a smaller town and she's in a kind of loveless engagement to like a high-powered career guy and you know it just it seems like the right engagement to be in but you know she meets a humble farm boy or whatever you know just like yeah and the humble farm boy is like what you met your husband on match dot whatever or they make up a name that's crazy meeting people on the internet (laughs) and there's some old person you know a, a grandpa or maybe there's a child also and they'll give some straight home like garden 
variety wisdom that's like, you know, ultimately you got to follow your heart and, and only you know what's good for you or whatever. Some stupid bullshit like that. <laughs> this movie's great because the main character gets confused and ends up at a different house, which is filled with like Christmas time, uh, fun stuff, songs and lights. And uh oh, she's at the wrong place. And her husband or soon to be husband boyfriend shows up and is like, oh, come on, you got to come to my actual home. And he looks at this giant McMansion. He's like, as if I would live here. <laughs> and it's like, what? <laughs> this is the working class within the context of a Hallmark movie? Let's talk about the houses in these movies, because every holy shit, every single one of these movies has some home or maybe it's a lodge or cottage. McMansion. Yeah, they're all McMansions. They all look like places that like a porn crew is going to film at in the afternoon. <laughs> And we're always told that these houses have been in the family for 30 years. And like, I have to be home at Christmas. You know, I can't go to the big job interview or whatever. I can't I can't do this or that because we've always been at this home and this home means so much to me. And the career woman is going to come from the big city and she's going to sign a deal that's going to turn this home into condos or whatever. And, and isn't that a shame? Because there's so much history in these walls and these walls look like shit. <laughs> They're just covered in chintzy garbage, just nutcrackers as far as the eye can see. The houses all look like they were built last week. Yeah, and they probably, um, I don't know, it's like a subprime mortgage they bought off of some, you know, poor family that got tricked into purchasing it. And they're all like hedge fund people. And they never really tell you what jobs these people have either. It's like, how can you afford this house? Oh, I'm just an old maple syrup salesman. It's like, well, you wouldn't have this house. This is the disadvantage that Hallmark movies have compared to studio romantic comedies because the Hallmark movies, they don't have the top flight technicians. They don't have the top flight actors. They don't have locations or they don't have the budget and resources to create locations that have a little bit of texture in them to convince you that these are locations, to convince you that this house really is a character in the movie. And so, so much of it is just like, you kind of got to take everything on faith. You got to take it on faith that this couple is in love. (laughs) Just like the characters in the movie. Well, a very merry mix-up I was also bothered by the fact that like the male romantic lead is very belligerent about like him getting together with a woman who has clearly shown she has somebody else in her life he's like come on it's fate why we should be together and he like goes to the house and bothers her and like just won't leave her alone a grandpa shows up at one point to give her some folksy advice like what are you doing this is not your home and the movie this week that almost killed me was 2013's let it snow this was number two on good housekeeping's list of the best hallmark movies it came out in 2013 and i don't know the only explanation for it being number two on that list is it was the right movie at the right time maybe this was one of those movies that just helped establish the formula i don't know i should say that these kind of formulaic plots would not bother me that much if there were just like a few tweaks could it be like a working class home not a giant mcmansion could they have other troubles in their lives could there be other decisions than settling down in the hometown where you grew up just giving away your life for the rest of time until you die forgetting all the choices you didn't make yeah, oh, just those little tweaks. That wouldn't be that much of a problem, but then it wouldn't be a Hallmark Christmas movie, would it? I mean, that's what the producers would tell you. I guess not. I mean, can we at least just have like a funny comedy relief character, you know? Like anything. Like 
Uh, do these movies ever have villains, like actual villainous people? I mean, they must, some of them, right? Some of them must, but for the most part, the villains are always like the the head of the corporate office who's like, no, you cannot get involved in this community. You have to go there and sign the deal, and we're going to tear down that lodge, and we're going to turn it into, you know, a tourist attraction. But then eventually, the head of the corporate head office, eventually he shows up at the holiday party at the end, and it's like, you know what? You've taught me the true meaning of Christmas. It's a very neoliberal concept that, like, listen, everyone is human. We shouldn't punish anyone for the misdeeds <laughs> that they've done. Come into Christmas and ah, let's sing songs. Nah, these war criminals don't need to be punished. I agree. Let It Snow stars one of the queens of the Hallmark Christmas genre, Candace Cameron Bure, who I don't like. Uh, out of everyone that we watch, she seems like the one that is above it and completely uninvested in whatever's going on in any other movie she would be the villain of the piece but now here she's the protagonist yeah i don't find her charming i don't find her charismatic uh i'm sorry folks and this movie is uh you know we've basically outlined the plot already which is that uh you know alan thick is her dad and her boss Come on. That's right. He runs the big, uh, is it a real estate company? I don't know. But anyway, he sends her to this community where there's the lodge and the lodge has always been the center of all Christmas activities in the community. Okay. So I have to say, who can afford to stay at this lodge? It must be so expensive. An all-inclusive holiday lodge. Well, apparently a lot of people can because we're told that it's sold out every year, you know, from September to June, basically. People are always, always there. Even so, Alan Thicke wants to steamroll this place. He doesn't see the value in it. And when Candace Cameron Bure, his daughter, explains to him, no, look at the look at the numbers. We can sell this. We can keep selling this as a holiday hotspot. He explains to her, our market doesn't care about Christmas. <laughs> I love money, and that's all that matters. And now that sounds like a pretty bad guy, right? You know, a guy who doesn't care about Christmas. Well, what if I told you that the reason he doesn't like Christmas is because his beloved ex-wife died and... Christmas brings back her memory to him and he doesn't like that. And so he's become the Grinch. And, you know, it makes sense at the end that he was going to destroy the livelihood of this, all these people. But at the end, he comes to his senses and they can all live happily ever after. He even fires his daughter. But also the lodge, the people that run it, I hate them as well. So, you know, it's tough to make a decision. He is almost a fascist about Christmas. The guy that runs it, he's like, no snowmobiles, no electronics, no anything. We're having a classic Christmas. Another thing that I found funny about this one, Let It Snow, is that we're constantly being told about how beautiful the landscape is and it looks like shit. It looks like, <laughs> you know, my community park in Etobicoke that I grew up near. There's nothing to look at in this movie. I just wanted to see something beautiful. Yeah, and I guess that when it's on a factory line, these beautiful ideas are so honed in that nothing can be beautiful. I almost admire just the purity of these movies. They have so little and, and the audience has to bring so much to them. The audience has to do so much emotional heavy lifting. Well, they're bringing their own nostalgic baggage of what Christmas represents because the movie is not going to give it to them. So let's talk about the one that we sort of liked. And that is 2020's The Christmas House. A big deal because after poof, two decades, Hallmark is like, listen, there's going to be a gay couple in the movie. 
no, no, they're not going to be the protagonist. We're not, you know, we're not ready for that yet, but they'll be supporting characters. Yeah, this came after, I guess, a wave of controversy about the lack of diversity in these films. And <laughs> Oh, well, diversity, you know, the white kind. But I get the sense that this is kind of the closest that Hallmark has had to a prestige production. They you know that of... this came also in the wake of Hallmark banning commercials that featured gay couples in them? Oh, I did not know that. Interesting. This is a real like, oh, please, we're not that bad, which is bad well anyway i think they brought their a game to this movie which means that it's like it's only okay but i was kind of you know i I had a pleasant enough time watching it uh there was stuff in it i liked the plot is treat williams and who's the actor that plays his wife sharon lawrence they do a thing every year which is they make their house into this kitschy christmas thing that if i was a kid and i was forced to go to it i'd be like oh this is so boring why am i here but it's a big deal, and they haven't done it in a long time, and they bring all their boys back, and uh, one of their boys' husband, to uh, redo the Christmas house for one big blowout, because we learn they're about to sell their home. And uh, their kids, they all have their different things in their lives. The uh, gay couple are trying to adopt, and <laughs> the other guy is a big TV star, which is play like, it's just something. You know, every, every you know someone who's a tv star yeah, he, on a show called handsome lawyer that's right and his show's about to be canceled unless maybe he needs to take a big meeting on christmas eve will it happen we don't know here's what i liked about this one i thought the central premise was good and was emotionally resonant which is it's a family and you know the boys are in their 30s and they're finally closing down this house that they've had for their entire life so that's an inherently kind of like melancholic emotionally resonant premise it's not it's not just the standard hallmark thing of like the corporation is gonna knock over you know the lodge it's like the family dissolving in a way it's a very ozu like premise and i like that the handsome boyfriend is reconnecting with someone that he previously has a relationship with and that their lives have gone on and like she has a kid so it's not like just some meet cute random nobody that a relationship will form with there's also the revelation halfway through that the house is not they're not just selling the house it's not just the house that's going but treat williams and his wife they're actually going to separate and that's the big secret and one of the kids knows this but the other kid doesn't and i think that's an interesting idea. i think that it was refreshing that the kid didn't react was like no you can't do this he was like i'm sorry that this is happening to you but like there's an emotionally mature response to the news that parents are breaking up now will the parents get back together near the end of course they do yeah which is a shame i mean i'm i'm sad the movie copped out like that but whatever oh it also cops out to the house being sold because uh (laughs) one of the sons just buys a house instead of a message of listen christmas is great and thinking about past memories but you can't hold on to the past in a death grip no you can just keep dragging them on forcibly putting those memories on you know the continuing members of your family i liked the cast in this one i thought everyone was charming i thought there was some chemistry i thought there was chemistry between treat williams and sharon lawrence even uh and i guess that's all you can ask for in one of these i mean is it really that much to ask i guess it is based on the other movies that we've seen which are considered the best of this genre if i were a big time hollywood director if i were a very famous director i would be interested in making one of these movies and making it just on the same schedule that everyone else does the al pacino style where Al Pacino's like, I just want to make these DTV movies good. Or like, you know, Gus Van Sant making the Psycho remake, being like, well, let, let's try this. And can can I, through uh, my sheer presence, turn it into something good? You know, just, just an exercise in form. I would be very curious. David Fincher would be the perfect 
person to make a Christmas movie because he essentially worked within that kind of like hermetically sealed world already. But what about like what if Paul Thomas Anderson just made one of these films? I would love Alexander to see Payne, that. Yeah, you know, and and just did it the same schedule everyone else, same script as anyone else. Would it be different? I would be curious to know. I mean, the question is like, are these directors looking down upon the material? Do they like the material, or are they approaching it? We've talked about this before. It's just a job that they have these kind of things that they need to hit to do it well. And by doing it, they take satisfaction from that. Even if the end product doesn't emotionally resonate or isn't really that passionate, like it's just doing the job good enough. And of course it is for a lot of these people. Well, I mean, as a professional writer, I've done hack work in my day. I'm sure that you've, as a videographer, done some hack work in your day too. But I think the difference is that what we're doing there is not narrative, right? Like we can't, like you can write the best um, blurb for a concert in a magazine, but it's not going to move somebody. When the confines of a Christmas movie, it is technically set up to move people and to kind of connect with people within the confines of what it does. So it's like a different kind of hack work. I guess. But like if I'm writing a piece of hack work and I can make it a little bit better, like I'm very conscious of what I'm doing. I'm very conscious that I'm not writing in my own voice or anything. But like if you can do a kind of like nice turn of phrase or like, like let's say you're a sculptor and you can make a beautiful sculpture or you've been hired to build a chair. And maybe to what extent can you take pride in just having built a really good chair, like a sturdy chair that people can sit on? But I think other than the Christmas house, I didn't see any of those sturdy chairs. No, no. So that's the thing that I'm kind of baffled by is that maybe the good ones do exist, but they are so lost in the scrum that it'll take like another two decades before they pop out in the same way that like Ulmer stuff rose to the top. Well, we tried. Yep, we did. <laughs> so, uh, happy holidays, everybody. And as per usual, you can contact us at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Lucas Simon Foster, and it goes, Hi, parasocial friends. Greetings from the hills of Mount Washington in beautiful Northeast Los Angeles. I must recommend a criminally underrated piece of cinematic art that surely eclipses the work of masters like a Pitchapong and Joseph H. Lewis. The picture... Beast Wishes, a straightforward 55-minute documentary about original monster kid and candidate for sainthood Bob Burns. You fellows read any of his books, seen his doc, heard his episode of Guilford Godfrey's podcast? I remember Mr. Sloan at one point, I think in the context of Ed Wood's Motley Crew, hardcore fans and collectors are typically kind of bummers, outcasts. That's right, but Bob Burns is the exception, as Joe Dante says. He is beloved by all, a nice regular guy despite his unshakable commitment to monster stuff. And you'll get your Ed Wood fix in the doc, by the way. I hope to see Letterboxd box reviews from you boys soon this is a great feel-good film as far as i'm concerned all hail bob burns and his lovely wife i appreciate the letter writer sending us this but i also have to say me and will know who bob burns is (laughs) (laughs) yes uh we are very well acquainted with bob burns bob burns is one of the guys in hollywood who has a gorilla suit and has often appeared in as gorillas in movies and you know him and Ray Crash Corrigan and anyone else who often plays a gorilla in a movie, Justin and I, we we know those guys. And Bob Burns is also one of the mega fans that like, other than the uh, Forrest J. Ackerman mansion, I think Bob Burns is the next on the list where he has all the classic stuff.
stuff. He appears in all of the documentaries as well, talking about it. Just an affable presence. Isn't he the one who had the original King Kong exoskeleton? Yeah, I think that sounds right. I had a book of his growing up called It Came From Bob's Basement, where it oh, was like... I had that same book. Yeah, beautiful book full of like all the cool props he has and stories. Like he had a story in there about, you know, knowing Ed Wood in real life. Uh, there's another good book that he did more recently called Monster Kid Memories. I love the guy. He's a beautiful man. And I would love to watch that doc. Yeah, you know what? I have not heard of this doc. So thank you for bringing it to our attention because I would like to dive in and know more about his life and his roles as Kogar the Gorilla in such classics as Rat Fink a Boo Boo and Lemon Grove Kid Meets the Monsters. Yeah, this is a man. He knew Ed Wood. He knew Ray Dennis Steckler. He knew Coleman Francis. Uh, you know, he unites so many great filmmakers. So thank you so much for the letter. And if anybody else has questions, you can send them at Podcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, we continue the uh, holiday cheer, don't we, Will? That's right. We talk about one of my favorite Christmas movies, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. It's one that Will has much more nostalgia and good feeling for than I do. So it's a really fun conversation where we talk about where that came from, Will's experiences with it, and of course, the movie itself. You can listen to that at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. What is a better gift than gifting yourself a Patreon subscription? <laughs> it's only $5 a month and you get our entire back catalog as well as the episode that we just mentioned. Will, uh, I think we're taking a week off, right? It's our holiday that sounds break. right, but maybe when we come back, we'll talk about like movie of the year. Yeah, that's what we usually do. I think we may approach it a little differently than we usually do, but people always click on our top 10 list. Like that is our most popular episodes all year because people want to know what to watch. I don't think I can give you 10 though for this year. You don't have to. Even ones that you've discovered or are from 2019, played a bunch of film festivals or stuff like that. doesn't need to be 10, Well, Don't worry. Yeah, what if we talk about like movies we liked this year and also like big discoveries? Exactly. So that's what we'll be talking about next time. Until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. What topic do we have? I forget now. So, as I usually do every Christmas, I watch Jingle All the Way, the Christmas classic. You're my number one customer. (laughs) (laughs) That is a film that every time I watch it, it's a weird experience because it never fails to amuse me. I haven't reached a point where I'm like, ugh, this again. Kind of like, you know, there's movies that when you watch them regularly, you know all the beats, like... Something even like Yui Kitamo's Versus. Like, I got that Blu-ray, and I'm like, haven't watched it yet. I watched it a few years ago. <laughs> like, I know the movie, but Jingle All the Way, mm, it's fresh every time. It has kind of a weird reputation, because many people love it. it. It's iconic in some ways, and yet it also has kind of like a disreputable reputation. It's like, oh yeah, that's a guilty pleasure, or it's kind of a bad movie. And I don't necessarily think it is. It's been a little while since I've seen it. I'm probably going to watch it this year. I think that it's not a bad movie. If you want to watch a bad Christmas movie, you watch Deck the Halls or Christmas with the Cranks. Like, those are terrible movies. Everyone that made this picture showed up. They're dedicated. I mean, it features a uh, all-star Phil Hartman performance as the sex pest next door neighbor. Every line that comes out of his mouth is absolute gold. I mean, whenever I think of Jingle All the Way, I think of like funny moments that actually are funny. Like like when he's trying to chase that little ball through the mall and, and there's the girl. And... 
Jackie Chan, eat your head, eat your heart out. I am not a pervert. I'm just looking for Turbo Man doll. But you know, at the same time, this movie, I just said that like it works as a film. I don't think I would watch it if you did not have the unreal performance of Arnold Schwarzenegger at its center. Because he somehow delivers a performance where every line is completely unbelievable that it would be coming out of a human mouth of a man in this position. Yet it is undeniably charismatic and hilarious. Well, also just the fact that he is an Austrian bodybuilder and he's a suburban dad named like Howard or something like that. It's Howard because everyone's like, Howard! And the, the movie would only really make sense if he were kind of like a schlubby, put-upon guy. Like Tom Hanks is the guy you would expect to star in it, but I guess so much of the humor comes from the fact that it's like a big, muscly Austrian bodybuilder who's like running around trying to get a doll and, you know, getting getting stepped on and trampled and, on. I mean, every time you hear Arnold go like, oh, it's always funny. And I mean, Phil Hartman obviously is improving his heart out too. There's a, my favorite line, probably the movie is like Arnold has like destroyed Phil Hartman's Christmas. Arnold's wife is super angry at him. And Phil Hartman turns to Arnold and goes, you can't bench press your way out of this one. The idea of Arnold being cocked by Phil Hartman is inherently very funny. People always say that Arnold Schwarzenegger is like a bad actor, or they say things like, oh, well, he's more of a screen presence than an actor or whatever. I actually think he's kind of a great actor. You know, in a movie like this, I think he sells every single line. I think he can do a whole range of emotions. If Tom uh, Hanks is starting this movie, I would not be talking about it right now. It's all about Arnie. Those big, expressive eyes throughout it. And I mean, after Jingle All the Way, uh, the stream that we did, we actually watched Last Action Hero, and I think that is another very maligned film, especially on its release. But like Arnie in that film can sell the comedy, and he can also sell like the sad drama of his existence. At one point, he confronts himself, and he's like, "You bring me nothing but pain," and you buy it in that context. Yeah. So I think uh, this holidays, you should just remind yourself that Arnold Schwarzenegger as an actor. He's great. Yeah, he's great. I love him. Person? Ooh, no, he's bad. <laughs> Real bad. 